Hello and welcome to the Names Not Numbers podcast. Recorded on the 20th of June 2016, just ahead of the EU referendum, this episode features noted human rights barrister Philippe Sands QC. For further information on upcoming speakers and events, please visit names.numbers.com. Morning, well, or afternoon. Um, so I should introduce myself. I teach around the corner at UCL. Uh, I'm Professor of International Law, and I am also a barrister at Matrix Chambers. And a lot of the cases that I do uh, concern uh, mass killings, uh, two concepts that you might want to have in mind, genocide and crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity is the crime of killing a large number of individuals, and genocide is the crime of the destruction of groups. And I want to talk a little bit about how I got to writing... Uh, a new book that came out about three weeks ago called East West Street, which tells the origins of crimes against humanity and genocide, but from a very personal perspective, from the lives of four individuals, one of whom was my grandfather, the other three of whom I did not know, but were lawyers whose work I had very much come in contact with. It's an extremely personal book, but it deals with the biggest issues. And I want to lead this into a conversation, the provocative part, uh, to uh, where we are now in this country, in this week, and what is happening. Because I think we can learn a lot from the experience of 1914 to 1946, a period that I feel I've been deeply immersed in over the last seven years uh, of uh, writing this book. About seven years ago, in the spring of 2010, I received an invitation to deliver a public lecture uh, at the University of Lviv in the western Ukraine uh, on the work that I do and the cases that I've done on crimes against humanity and genocide. It's a list that you'll be broadly familiar with. Uh, It involves... Uh, Congo, three million dead between 1998 and 2003, Rwanda, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Cambodia. Uh, The list, sadly, goes on and on uh, and on. And I accepted to give the invitation, uh, not because I had a particular desire to travel to the Ukraine, and not because I had a particular desire to... uh, give a lecture on crimes against humanity and genocide. It's the subject that I teach. I went because my grandfather was born in Lviv when it was known as Lemberg. Uh, He was born there in 1904. He had never talked to me or to any other member of the family about what had happened in the period 1904 to 1944 in that city, and I just sort of wanted to know about it. I wanted to visit the house where he was born. I wanted to walk the streets. In preparing for that lecture, which I, in fact, gave in the autumn of 2010, uh, I came across a curious set of coincidences. Put it no higher than that. The man who invented the concept of crimes against humanity and put it into international law very recently, uh, on July the 29th, 1945, to be precise, at about 3.30 p.m., when he gave the idea to Robert Jackson, the prosecutor at Nuremberg, was a man called Hirsch Lauterpacht, who was professor of international law at the time at Cambridge University. And amazingly, I discovered in writing my lecture that he was born in the very same city 
uh, of Lemberg, Lvov, Lviv, it's all the same place. Uh, and he had gone to the very law school that had invited me to give the lecture. Uh, but the law school, or at least those who had invited me, were completely unaware of that fact. So I thought, that's curious. Uh, the man who, if you like, caused the subject to come into being is directly connected to the place that I'm going to. So I carried on my research, and then I came across a second amazing coincidence. Uh, the man, uh, you've probably jumped to it already, the man who invented the concept of genocide, Raphael Lemkin, also came from the same town uh, and also attended the very same law school. And those who had invited me also were blissfully unaware of the fact that uh, there was this point of remarkable uh, connection. Uh, his name, as I said, is Raphael Lemkin. He invented the word genocide in 1944, and he persuaded Robert Jackson uh, to put the term into uh, the uh, Nuremberg indictment rather than the statute in October 1945. I go off to the city of Lviv. I deliver my lecture. It turns out to be a fabulous place. I wonder, just out of interest, has anyone here been to Lviv? Okay, so that's about par for the course. It'll be one in a hundred people uh, will have gone. Uh, it is truly a remarkable place, a dark place, but nevertheless a very interesting place. And it's well worth uh, visiting as they begin to come to terms with their remarkable history. So I sort of now t tweaked, my curiosity is tweaked by this strange point of connection, my origins relate somehow on one side of the family to that city. The subject that I work in is connected to that city. And then I come across a fourth man. And I come across the fourth man uh, in uh, this particular way. The fourth man is called Hans Frank. Hans Frank was Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer in the period 1928 to 1932. So all those cases we all read about at school when Hitler would go off uh, to uh, various courts and appear as a witness or when his henchmen would be hauled up for various crimes of aggression and criminality uh, of various kinds, Hans Frank was the lawyer who ran those cases. He subsequently became Minister of Justice in Bavaria and then in 1939, in October, he was appointed Governor-General of Occupied Poland based out of the Wawel Castle in Krakow. And he governed uh, occupied Poland for about five years. He left in February 1945. Uh, he was arrested by the Americans in May 1945, and he became defendant number seven at the Nuremberg trial. He sat on the front bench, six along from Hermann Goering. Those of you who know those famous uh, images will recognize him as the one who's always wearing dark glasses. Frank was prosecuted by Lauterpacht and Lemkin. Lauterpacht was part of the British prosecution team working with Hartley Shawcross. And uh, he did not know when the trial began 70 years ago in the autumn of 1945, November the 20th, that his entire family, with one exception of one individual, uh, had been wiped out by uh, Hans Frank. Uh, so he finds himself in a position without knowing it that he's actually prosecuting uh, the person who is responsible for perpetrating 
a crime against humanity, against his family. And Lemkin is in exactly the same position. Uh, Lemkin is not part of the British team, he's part of the American team working with Robert Jackson. And he too only discovers a year later, in September 1946, in the interim period between the close of the oral arguments and the giving of the judgment, that he too has only one survivor of his entire family. And he too discovers that the man he's been prosecuting, Hans Frank, has been uh, involved in the killings uh, that led to the extermination of his entire family. So who is Hans Frank? Uh, And in talking today, I've spent a lot of time thinking uh, about Hans Frank's role in the current situation that the United Kingdom and the United States seem in particular to be hurtling towards, along with the rest uh, of continental uh, Europe. Hans Frank was a very highly educated lawyer. He went to one of the best law schools. He was a philosopher. He was a collector of art. He was a personal friend of Richard Strauss. Uh, He considered himself to be a man of high culture. Uh, And yet, uh, he was uh, on September the 30th, uh, 1946, uh, convicted of crimes against humanity, not genocide, because the judgment decided there was at that point no such crime and it made no mention of it. That was remedied a few months later uh, by the United Nations meeting in New York. And the following day, on the 1st of October, he was sentenced to hang for the murder of four million Poles uh, and Jews. In writing that part of the book that concerned Hans Frank, I do what I do when I'm preparing a case, which is just read myself in incredibly deeply into anything that I can find about the subject matter I'm litigating. And one of the pieces of writing that I came across in relation to Hans Frank was uh, a, a biography of Hans Frank written by Nicholas Frank, the son uh, of Hans Frank. It was published originally in 1987 in Germany, in German, where it is called Der Vater, uh, the father. Uh, it was published in 1991 in an abridged English version uh, in the United States called In the Shadow of the Reich. And it was, uh, I read it on a single sitting over a weekend, as vitriolic attack by a child on his parent as I have ever read. It is an extraordinarily gripping and nasty account. I thought, I'd like to meet this son. I'd like to see Nicholas and see what he's like because I'd like to understand from the son's perspective what it is uh, that makes a man as highly educated, as sophisticated and as cultured as Hans Frank to become involved in mass killing of that kind. Of course, that's a question that I ask myself in relation to all of the cases that I do. How does it happen that reasonable, smart, sophisticated, cultured, intelligent people somehow feel it is okay to get involved in mass extermination? It is not a monopoly of Germans, I can assure you, given the cases that I've been involved in. And Nicholas... uh, agreed to meet with me, and over the past four and a half years, I've come to know Nicholas very, very well indeed, and I've come to really appreciate 
the insights that Nicholas has uh, into his father. Indeed, uh, our relationship has become extremely close. It's a sense of curiosity, really, that 70 years would have passed. Uh, when a film that we made called My Nazi Legacy uh, was released last autumn, we appeared together on the Today program, um, and John Humphreys expressed surprise that two individuals, one of whom was the grandson of a man whose entire family had been exterminated by the other man's father, uh, the man in the studio, that it was somewhat odd that that could happen. In fact, that happened uh, a couple of days after the killings at the Bataclan in Paris. And I said, I think, on radio, in response to a question from John, it's a bit like uh, a grandchild of one of the Bataclan victims uh, in 70 years' time befriending uh, the son of one of the Bataclan killers. That is in a sense, the analogy. And I stand here as uh, a living proof that it can happen. But that's not where I want this story to go. Where I want this story to go is what happened last week in Washington. Nicholas and I went off to Washington together. We were invited by the Holocaust Museum in uh, Washington, D.C. to do a panel uh, together to launch my book, but also to mark his donation of his father's private home movies to the Holocaust Museum. If some of you have seen My Nazi Legacy, which is now, I think, on Netflix, um, you will have seen there is a very short clip of about 45 seconds of extremely rare footage uh, in color taken in the Krakow ghetto. Uh, and it came from a reel of film that was nicked by an American soldier on May the 4th, 1945. That itself is a remarkable story. Lieutenant Walter Stein, who arrested... Uh, Hans Frank, uh, just 60 kilometers south uh, of Munich, uh, gathered not only the 42 volumes of Hans Frank's diaries, which became exhibit number one at the Nuremberg trial, extremely famous diaries, but also two canisters of film, uh, which had been developed, which Frank had shot in various parts of Krakow in 1940 and 1941. And Walter Stein took them back to his family. They ended up in the possession of his great-niece, who in 2010 decided that she would donate them to the Holocaust Museum until an intervening thought came to her mind, namely this wasn't her property at all. It wasn't, in fact, her family's property. It actually belonged to the Frank family, and she returned it to Nicholas Frank in Germany, who six years later donated to the Holocaust Museum. And that was why we ended up in Washington. And in Washington, we got involved in a really interesting conversation. We got involved in a conversation that was prompted by an attack that had been launched by Donald Trump uh, a couple of days before we arrived. Some of you may be aware of the story on a federal judge who has been hearing a case involving allegations of wrongdoing in relation to an entity known as Trump University. There is actually such a thing. Any graduates of Trump University here? It would be fantastic if there was. I'm yet to meet a, a, a graduate of Trump University. But anyway, as you will know, the judge was the subject of pretty strong attacks by Donald Trump uh, based exclusively on his supposed ethnic origins, namely Mexican. Uh, and Trump made the point that it was inappropriate for a man, a judge of Mexican uh, heritage, to hear...
here a case involving the interests of Donald Trump in circumstances in which Donald Trump had made clear his views on Mexicans in the United States and his desire to build a wall. Interesting, said Nicholas. It's exactly the same argument that my father put to his client, Adolf Hitler, in 1929, when Hitler began a campaign of making clear his position that he would not wish to appear before a judge in any proceedings in which the judge was a Jew. Now, Nicholas was very careful what he was saying. He wasn't saying that Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler, and I'm not saying Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler. What I am saying is that alarm bells need to start ringing as to what is going on and the nature of discourse in that country and the nature of discourse in this country. It's not that we have completely forgotten history. It's not that the parallels are precise. It's not that Mr. Trump is Mr. Hitler or vice versa. It's simply that we ought to be alert to circumstances in which a them and us discourse starts to permeate popular politics. And that is the common thread in my work when I try to understand why 8,000 are killed in Srebrenica or a few hundred in Vukovar or three million in the Congo or why interrogation techniques are used against particular groups of Muslims in Guantanamo or in Bagram, it's usually because somewhere along a continuum of dehumanization a process has begun. They are different from us. They do not share the same values that we share. They are not, in fact, the same kinds of human beings that we are. That is not happening only in the United States. That is happening here in this country uh, right now. And we've seen, I think, over the past few days, a recognition of some of the issues that are coming up. Let me pause just by reminding you that in the past, and I'm going to throw it open then to questions and conversation, that in the past weeks we have had politicians from different sides invoking for their particular purposes Adolf Hitler. We've had Ken Livingston tell us that actually Adolf Hitler was a Zionist. We've had Boris Johnson telling us that the European Union shares the same objectives uh, as Adolf Hitler. And you can begin to see how a popular discourse begins to be infected by a kind of language that is extremely problematic. I think probably it's best that I pause there and let's throw it open to questions. But I just want to end with the observation that I think we stand at a very delicate crossroads right now. In our domestic politics in this country, you can begin to see shades of the kind of language that exists in the letters of Hans Frank and the diaries of Hans Frank, as shown to me by his son, Nicholas. I want to be very, very clear. I am not saying that we in the United Kingdom are on the cusp of taking that particular direction. But being involved in genocides and in cases involving crimes against humanity, being deeply immersed in that period of 1914 to 1946, has alerted me to the dangers of going into that direction with this kind of language. And that extends to the kinds of posters that are now being put up uh, on our websites and in our streets 
in relation to a coming vote that is being held on Thursday. I don't know whether the events, the terrible events of last week, will be a wake-up call, but I don't remember a time in my adult life that political discourse in this country has crossed the lines that it appears to be crossing. And I think we need to immerse ourselves into history and be extremely alert as to the direction we appear to be on the cusp of taking in this country. Let me stop there. I hope I've partly provoked you, and let's throw it open to questions and conversation. Somebody down here at the front. Um, can I ask you on that note, in all of the studies of the, the various atrocities that you've looked into over the years, what is the best way of preventing them? If there is a way of steering society away from this course of action, do you, have you looked into some potential genocides that didn't happen because something stopped it? That's a really, really big question. Um, let me answer it in this way. There was a hope in 1946. Robert Jackson stood up in the Nuremberg courtroom in courtroom 600 and said, never again. And, of course, that has not been borne out. The hope was that by creating a new international system, one in which there was a greater solidarity between countries those kinds of mass atrocities would stop. It, it is, most of you will be amazed to know that until 1939, 1945, there was no rule of international law which said a country could not exterminate certain members of its population. There was no system of human rights. There was no system of rules which said if you, know, you want to kill all the Poles or all the Jews or all the Ukrainians or all the women or all the people over 45 or people with disabilities or whatever, you, you could do it as a matter of international law. There were domestic constraints, constitutional and legal constraints, but no international legal constraint. And it was not appropriate in those circumstances for one country to say to another country, you can't do that, because there was no rule saying you couldn't do it. And so the the revolutionary change that took place in 1945, and it's a very recent change, was to say those days are over. And when one country starts mistreating its own citizens, the international community now has the right to intervene by objecting and in certain circumstances by intervening uh, militarily. And so the hope is, and I remain attached to that hope, that it is that system of international solidarity which includes rules and includes courts which will prevent that from happening in the long run. It's a long game. But that also, right now, is in issue. One of the great concerns that I have is that if the Brexit vote goes in favour of remaining, which I am passionately in favour of, one of the prices that will be paid for that is in relation to the European Convention on the Human Rights, which the United Kingdom drafted, which the United Kingdom was the leading proponent of, and that the payoff for people like Johnson uh, and Gove will be, okay, you may not have quite got it on this, so we'll give you a bit more on that. And you will have heard this proposal for a British Bill of Rights. The British Bill of Rights is nothing other than a way of distancing ourselves from precisely the system that was put in place in that period, 1945 to 1950. So I haven't really answered your question, but I'm certainly of the view that 
experience, my experience in the cases that I've been involved in tells me that the earlier you have international interventions, the less likely it is that a country will uh, eliminate some of its own citizenry. Um, you said you were trying to work out what would drive an intelligent and rational person to commit genocide. Uh, did you come to any conclusions that would hold for more than one individual, or is it sort of very scattered? That, too, is, is a wonderful question. Um, I think every person is, uh, is sort of individual and different, but the, the answer that, to your question that resonates most loudly is the answer that Nicholas Frank gives in relation to his father when I ask him that question. What he says of his father is that he says, my father lacked what he calls civil courage. He did not know how to stand up to more powerful people, and he did not know how to stand up to popular movements. Those words resonate particularly right now, I think, in certain parts of Europe, including in this country. And let me illustrate that with, with an example of how a man like him can be completely torn in the summer of 1942, he gave a series of speeches at the four big German universities, uh, basically calling for a return to the rule of law in Germany. Okay? Caused real disdain with Hitler and with Himmler, who were extremely upset with him for giving those lectures. But at the same point, he coincidentally received a letter from his childhood sweetheart, Lily Grau, uh, who wrote to him to say that her son had been lost on the Eastern Front, could he, as a powerful person, intervene? He does intervene, and he meets with Lily Grau, and they have a stupendous love affair in the course of that summer, coinciding exactly with his giving of the four speeches. At that point, he decides that he is going to um, try to get a divorce from his wife and finally hook up with darling uh, Lily, and he goes to his wife, and I've seen uh, the, the, the requests in black and white in Brigitte Frank's diary and in his correspondence, and says to Brigitte, look, uh, I have been involved in uh, something uh, recently which is going to lead to something so terrible and so criminal that it would be better if you were to get a divorce from me. What he's referring to is his participation, his officer's participation at the Wannsee Conference in January 1942 in the implementation of the final solution. He's basically saying to his wife, give me a divorce or you will go down with me in relation to my involvement in the final solution. So I spent a lot of time talking with Nick, the son, imagining how it could be that a man at the very same moment is making these arguments in, uh, you know, universities around Germany, and on the other hand, using the final solution and his own known criminality in it to basically promote a fling that he's having with his childhood sweetheart. That's what it basically boils down to. And I can't easily give an answer to that beyond the answer that Nick gives. Weakness, a lack of civil courage, an inability to stand up to the great movements of the moment and say, whatever it means for my personal career, I will sacrifice it. He gets a phone call from Hitler at exactly that moment because Brigitte Frank has written to Hitler to complain and say she wants to stay with her man. And Hitler strips him of all of his jobs, but leaves him with the governor generalship of occupied Poland 
and he implements the uh, construction of all the concentration camps that are then built uh, in the next year uh, on German territory. So in answering your question, to delve into the mind of a man like that is obviously a phenomenally complex issue, but ultimately I think Nicholas Frank's answer is right. It's about a lack of civil courage, and a weakness of an inability to stand up and say for yourself as an individual, I believe certain things are right, I believe certain things are wrong, and I'm willing to sacrifice my entire career in order to do the right thing. He went so far, he was not willing to go all of the way. And I think there's a lesson in that. We're going to have two more questions, and then um, we... It's just one over here and one over there. Do you believe that had he stood up and challenged his superior, that would have helped? I don't believe that if he had stood up alone and challenged his superiors, it would have changed what came. But if enough people had stood up and challenged their superiors, that would have made a difference. And that you see across the field of the work that I do, whether it's in Syria or northern Iraq right now. I'm very involved right now in the cases involving the Yazidi women and girls who have been mass raped on a, a truly appalling scale. You see the patterns of behavior. You see individuals getting into a sort of group speak type of thing and being swept along by a particular moment of history and taking a particular direction. And that is coupled with a sentiment the people this is being done with, and I have to say that being with a 10-year-old girl who tells me she has been raped 550 times in the past year is as shocking an experience as I have ever come across. And when you ask that young girl why she thinks that man did it, what he was doing, what they were doing, she will describe to you in very simple terms men being driven along by a collective will, men who are under the influence of alcohol, men who are under the influence of drugs, men who are swept along and no longer able to exercise any degree of civil courage. But they will also say to you that amidst all of those people, there will be some who say, no, stop, we must not do it, but they are a minority. Do you think the very nature of a referendum where it's sort of yes, no, in, out, is that the kind of thing that creates the discourse of them, us, and those binaries that don't actually allow for the moral subtleties and complexities that you say we need? I mean, that again, it's a very complex question. I think however you had framed this question, I think the dynamic that we've gotten ourselves into, the very unhappy, the very divisive dynamic, I mean, if we pick anything up from this experience of the last few months, it is that this country is very deeply divided, that both sides need to do a lot more listening as to what is motivating uh, the other side. We know, I mean, I've said I'm passionately in favor of Remain. I understand the credible arguments, which are essentially about economic sovereignty in relation to the opposite view, the argument that I have tremendous difficulty with is the argument which seems to have uh, gained most resonance uh, on the Leave side, and that is the immigration issue, which is plainly there, and that is plainly a xenophobic instinct which is driving things along. That, I don't think, could have been avoided by framing the question in a different way. And there is even, I suppose, an argument um, that could be made, although it's 
difficult to know how these things go, that what the referendum might do, if we reflect carefully and wisely on it, is cause us to understand that there are a very large number of people out there who have a particular feeling in relation to this issue which we ignore at our peril. But I don't think it's the exact wording of the referendum that will have caused it. The referendum has unleashed a certain form of um, sort of vituperative uh, thinking. And I think the people who take real responsibility uh, for that are, frankly, uh, those who will go on national television uh, and say it is absolutely appalling to put a poster uh, like that on our screens and on our streets, but nevertheless continue to campaign with those individuals who are promoting that kind of vision and that kind of argument. So it's, it's, it's very, very complex, I think, what's happening and does not admit of a simple answer. Thank you very much. Can I hear um, a round of applause? Thank you very much. Thank you.